Get your Bibles out and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We continue our sermon series through this great letter that God's ordained to be in the holy canon. Uh, we come to it humbly um, and, and full of hope and excitement for what the Lord would have for us as we study his good word this morning. My privilege to be preaching verse 18 through 21. I want to take this passage and break it into two. Uh, in two parts, so we're going to do the front part of this this week and the second part next week. And um, Pray with me as we get ready to go to God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given for us to study your Holy Word, to lift our voices in unison to you who is worthy to be praised, to spend time in prayer, uh, to bring our lives before you, that you would do your mighty work in and through us for your purposes and not our own. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to to be together, to fellowship, and to to worship, um, that you, the saints would be edified and encouraged and empowered to move forward with a bold testimony of the gospel, the commitment to making disciples, serving you, our great King, all the days that you entrust to us. Speak clearly through me. Do your work as the Spirit moves among us in truth and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, the last part of verse 18 through 21 says this, But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. The wise and maturing Christian desires to be filled with the Spirit of God. What does that mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be, to be trusting, to be, to be looking to, clinging to, uh, to, to be satisfied in the Spirit. All that God is to us in our salvation, the indwelling of the Spirit to move and to motivate and convict us of sin. Um, we do this so that in this, the Lord bears fruit in us, the fruit of the Spirit. And in this, being filled with the Spirit, maturing in faith and life, our testimony is emboldened, our witness, our commitment to serving Christ as King. We're to walk in the power and the wisdom and the conviction of the Spirit of God. This is essentially what Paul said a few verses ago in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 5. He says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of the light of Christ is good fruit. It's right fruit. It's true fruit. And this makes sense because Christ is the light the fruit of Christ is good and true and right because Jesus is good and true and right. The evidence of being in the light of Christ, or as Paul says here now a few verses later in verse 18, being filled in the Spirit is the fruit we produce. When we are focused on God, when we are empowered by Christ, when we are filled with the Spirit, God will produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. Paul testifies to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-23. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience 
and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the qualities that reflect the character of God. These are the evidences of a person who is not given to the flesh, but is given to the power of God at work in them. So I ask you, Christians, are you filled with the Spirit? Meaning you are so given to God, so focused on God, you have so treasured God, that you have no room for the temptations of this life, no room for the longings of the flesh. Why? Because you are filled with the Spirit of God. See the blessing that it is to be filled in Him, committed to, focused on, satisfied in. Because I don't have room in my cup to go try to pursue other things to fill that portion. So I ask you, is this true of you? Is this true of your maturing in Christ, your sanctification? If not, if it's not true of you, you don't need to just work harder. That's religion. You need to become more given to Christ. More centered on and satisfied in Christ. Jesus blessed us with a, a sweet way to see this and understand this. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, the illustration he uses, whereby he references the Christians as branches and himself as the vine. A very sweet synopsis of what he says there is found in verse 5, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. The branch that is separated from the vine is a dead branch. Think about that. It's not life. It's not alive. Branch separated from the vine, laying on the dirt, laying on the rock, is dead. Has no life. This is what it is when we are separated from Christ. We are dead in our sin. By God's grace, He chooses many of us to be grafted into that vine, forgiven of our sin, adopted into His family. If you arrive here today and you have not known Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you stand before God guilty because of your sin, worthy of His punishment, of His condemnation. Only in Christ can your sin be forgiven. Only in Christ can you be made new and empowered with the Holy Spirit, that you would repent and believe and trust in Him and be saved. Start deep prayer for God's work in you today. By God's grace, He chooses many of us to bring us from death to life, to graft us into the vine who is life. And what that now means is that we have the power source. Think about that. We have, as a branch, the life source, the vine. The life that is Christ. The Holy Spirit is now on board, Scripture says. And so I would just ask you then, as a redeemed Christian... In your days, what are you clinging to? Are you clinging all the more to the vine who is life? Or are you clinging to other things? Maybe you're guilty of trying to cling to both. You got one hand on the vine and thankfulness for the gospel, and then you've got another hand on the things of life. When we are filled 
abiding in, satisfied in Christ. We're complete. We're lacking nothing. I need nothing else. I don't turn to counterfeits. I don't turn to the things of creation. I'm satisfied in the Creator. And when this is the case, God produces good and lasting fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, character change that we could never produce on our own. Are you hopeful to be more patient, more self-controlled, more gentle, more loving? You might muster that up with some hard effort and discipline for a time, but you won't produce that in a lasting way without transformation of God, the fruit of the Spirit. That's, that's where that's lasting, the work of the Lord in you. And what's sweet is to see a man or a woman who was a nightmare in sin be just redeemed and made new and become just a different person, a redeemed a, a person that's bearing the fruit of the Spirit, is gentle and patient, loving, self-controlled in a way they never were before. All the remedies of the world could never do that, but Christ can. If you're, fi- if you're not filled with the Spirit, and therefore maybe partially you're clinging to Christ, maybe you're trying to cling to other stuff, you have one hand on Him, one hand on the things of the world, then you're not satisfied. You're, you're, you're looking to fill your cup in other ways. In this, you will never be satisfied. The things of creation will never do what only Christ can do. We must be, as Paul's exhorting us here, filled with the Spirit, satisfied in Him alone. When we're filled with the Spirit, church, we maximize all that God offers us and wants to do through us. When filled by the Spirit, The Spirit purges and helps bring conviction and awareness of the things that tempt us. That in our sin, our flesh, we would often run to or look to. God produces in us something really sweet when we're filled with the Spirit. He produces a different life, a better life. A more purposeful and focused life. A God-honoring life. What does this spirit-filled life look like? It's the point of Paul's words in the next verses, 19 through 21. It's what we will study this week and next. In these two weeks, we will see how Paul identifies four evidences of the spirit-filled life. I'm excited to dive into them with you today. We have much to cover, and so let's do that now. Look with me at verse 19 as he continues Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Greek word here, that the English translators call addressing, when we look deeper at that Greek word, it could maybe better be translated in in this way, a persistent talking or preaching. So then we could read this, persistently talk and preach to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In this, Paul's saying, tell one another often the truths about God, who He is, what He has done, what He promises He will do. Paul is not saying that we need to sing to one another. The context of singing and worship is a part of this passage, and we're going to get to that. 
But in the front end of what he's saying here, there is a, God, a spirit-filled fellowship that we're to have. An interaction filled with the truth of God. We don't sing to one another. We sing to God. We worship God. But life in the redeemed fellowship of God, in the family of God, is always unto the glory of God, right? Nothing we do is outside of Christ, and it all is ultimately for Christ. Those filled with the Spirit can't help but speak about who God is and what He's done in such a way that it stirs up real praise from us for Him. Amen? To to help us digest this statement here in verse 19, we see a similar exhortation of Paul in a very comparable passage and exhortation that he gives to the church in Colossae. So look to me with me briefly at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In a minute, I'll read you the rest of this passage. You're going to see how quickly it mirrors what he's saying here in Ephesians 5.19. But in this, we get to have maybe a better helpful insight into what addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is. Here, Paul is saying, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This is church Christian fellowship. This is spirit-filled fellowship. Sharing, testifying, preaching the good news of Christ, that means a kind of gospel reorientation for the soul of fellow brothers and sisters. Let me give you a quick example of one of the ways I saw this happen this week. Our sister in Christ, Leslie Foster, posted these words in a frail moment in our country this week. She starts by reciting the words of a great hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Amen? Then she moves to words of admonishment and gospel encouragement for her brothers and sisters in Christ. She says, and I quote, Christian friends, our hope is in Christ alone, not in a political figure or party, not in a faulty or faultless election, not in a protest or riot response to a protest or riot. We condemn all sinful, violent actions, regardless of the perpetrators. We pray for our nation, for its leaders, for its citizens, for the hardened hearts of the unrepentant, and for the glory of God to be known and seen, even at, especially at, such a time as this. Amen? Do you see it? She wasn't singing to her brothers and sisters this psalm. She was speaking the truths of God by sharing it, the words of a faithful hymn, and then bringing high encouragement and gospel reorientation for the souls of her fellow believers, her fellow brothers and sisters, to draw them back to Christ and hoping Christ alone. This is, again, the evidence of spirit-filled fellowship. Talked about fellowship a few weeks ago in my sermon on Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. Let me remind you of a couple quick points. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It means a unique and special bond. I think sometimes the modern church has been guilty of using the word fellowship too loosely 
We use it as a generic term for spending time together. And in Scripture, it's bigger than that. It's not something we would do with secular unbelievers. We wouldn't just fellowship with them. Fellowship is a unique bond that we have in the body of Christ in this context. Why? Because it's more than just a typical partnership or casual friendship or relationship or neighbor relationship. There's a special connection, another level of connection. How so? Our closest friends, our truest family, our deepest relationships will be with true brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because they too have been removed from sin and death, removed from the ways of the world, enlightened with the truth, reborn in their spirit, to be given conviction and the power of God to honor God in a way that those still apart from Christ cannot and will not do. This needs to be, this kind of fellowship needs to be reflected in us, in our relationships with each other in the church. True fellowship is to be devoted to the family of God and no longer to those in the world in this special way. Fellowship is something so special that we only have it with other Christians. My question to you is this. Do you see evidences of a Spirit-filled fellowship in your life? As you cling to Christ, as you are filled with the Spirit, does that produce in you a practice, a testimony, a priority to do what Paul's saying here. Persistently talk and preach to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I pray it so. As you mature in faith in God, as the Spirit is at work in you and through you. The author of Hebrews gives us a great charge in Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called Today. That seems overly simplistic, and yet it's a helpful charge. I'd like to remind you, church, is today called today? Anyone? Yes, it is. Welcome to today, all the rest of you. Paul says, because it's today, encourage one another. What is he getting to? That we're to do this all the time. We're to be encouraging one another. We are to be teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. He's saying, don't be the body of Christ that tries to endure the war that rages around you without real and ongoing spirit-filled fellowship and gospel reorientation for one another. One last thing before we move into the next part of today's exhortation. You, each of you, you need this. You need to receive it. See, some of you are faithful to give it. You are good at speaking God's truths to other believers. You love them well. You're willing to be bold, to love others enough to admonish them back to Christ. But some of you don't as much look to receive this from others as well. You put up walls and guards. You stay distant. You don't invite them in. See with me, church, that spirit-filled fellowship means that there's a vulnerability that honors God when you let brothers and sisters speak truth 
in your life. Not just to let them do this, but you go so far to invite them in to do this. You make it a priority to seek it out. See, a secular person, someone outside of Christ, is quick to be defensive. Is quick to say, who are you to say this to me? When someone comes at you with words of observation or critique or refinement. But the Spirit-filled Christian is quick to lean in and to listen. To be thankful for and humble. To be blessed with truthful admonishment and encouragement from a fellow believer in the Lord. In this way are you practicing spirit-filled fellowship. Don't act like the secular person who's guilty of avoiding this. You're guilty of making excuses. Guilty of staying busy. Maybe you're guilty of hearing it, but then not acting it out. Act as the person quick to invite, quick to listen, and to be thankful for spirit-filled fellowship. I'd love to see this happen among us, among our church, among the body of Christ. Just Thursday night, I'm gathering with a few of the men that I'm discipling, getting ready to dig into God's Word, and my phone rings with an urgent call for help and counsel and a listening ear from a, a dear brother in the Lord. And I say, I can call you back when I'm done with the commitment I'm in the middle of, or I can invite you to join this time and invite them to join in my listening to you. How do you feel about these three other brothers getting on the line to hear what you have to say and to love you and admonish you and encourage you in whatever that is? He paused for a moment and he said, I'm not ready for that but that would be good. Let's do that. So I put the phone on speaker and he went forward in sharing, in crying, confessing, testifying the work of the Lord, asking for some counsel and help. And the brothers responded, loved him, encouraged him, challenged him. Even one of the brothers was tearful to say, brother, this was good for me. Some of the things that I'm in so the Lord used it. He's at work. Spirit-filled fellowship. Grown men. The most grown men won't pick up the phone to call one brother a leader. Let me let you into my stuff. How sweet it is when we're willing to sit down with a group of brothers that we know are pursuing the Lord. Let's go. And it was awesome. May this continue to be our testimony moving forward, church, in you and in those we're walking with. All right, let's move on to the next evidence of the Spirit-filled life that Paul's talking about. And we see it in the next part of the verse. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with, our, with your heart. Here Paul moves from our testimony to each other that stirs praise to the actual practice of singing and making music to the Lord in our heart. This evidence of the Spirit-filled life is seen in a personal way and it's evidenced in a corporate way among the church. 
First, consider with me the personal practice of singing, making a melody to the Lord with your heart. The fact is, we are made to worship. All of creation is made to worship and exalt the Creator. He is due honor and praise and glory. For we are His created, and He is the Creator. Our very existence and purpose of our days given to us by Him is for that ultimate purpose of worship and exaltation and glory to God. Timothy Keller says it well when he says, Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in such a way that it engages the entire being, mind, will, and emotions. So in this, worship is not just singing. It's a way that we ascribe value to something. It's a way we live for it. And so in this, we could slow to say, personally, what do I worship? Not necessarily what do you have on an altar and bow down before. I'm not talking. I'm talking in general. What do you live for? If someone were to follow you for one whole week, day and night, what would they report was the evidenced reason why you live your life? For what do you do what you do? And in this, we find our answers many times for what we ultimately worship and ascribe greatest value to. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. For whom do you live? What does your heart beat for? For whom do you love more than anything else in this life? The great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He is to receive our first, our greatest love. To love something more than Him is idolatry. It's to strip away what He is due. How do we love God with all of our life? How do we glorify God in all we do? How do we truly worship God in a daily, regular way? Word of Truth Catechism gives us a great help to this. Question 16. The question is, how should we glorify God? The answer, we glorify God by trusting in Jesus. You do not, you cannot, you will not glorify God unless you first trust in Jesus. Continue to trust in Jesus. It's your faith at work. Glorify God by enjoying Him. Treasuring Him. Above all else, growing in our knowledge of Him, believing His words and obeying His commands, and by showing and telling the world how great He is. This is how we glorify Him, worship Him in a daily way. These things. Christian, the Spirit-filled life produces personal and daily praise. This is done not so much in our singing daily, but in, our, in what we give our affections to, our, our priorities to, our purposes for doing what we do. We worship God in all that we do. Or we don't. There's a corporate element as well to our personal worship of God that... Is a big part of Paul's commendation here. 
Because he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There is a one another aspect to this, a corporate worship aspect. Think about the content of Sunday church. It's very focused on corporate worship. A faithful exercise in mutual agreement on who God is. What he has done and what he's promised to do. And we agree about these things in the form of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is truly one of the most special ways, church, that we spend time together as the people of God. When we prioritize time to strip away the noise, the busyness of life, the doing of life, to be in each other's physical company and to corporately testify who God is and what He is doing and what He has promised to do. This is why we are to not neglect the gathering of the saints as we are commanded to in Hebrews 10.25. This is why if you are filled with the Spirit, and you have missed corporate worship for any duration of time due to sickness or vacation or work busyness, you are truly longing to be back. Why? Because it is a good gift of God that we meet in person weekly in this way and worship Him together. This is a major way that we who are filled by the Spirit spill over into testimony and fellowship. We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with our heart. Let me ask you, is Sunday worship with the body of Christ a true and unwavering priority for your family, for yourself? in your weekly schedule. You make this so by not traveling too often. Maybe an occasional vacation is good for the economy God's given us. But when we travel then in a more normal way and get out of town, we are quick to get back in time to be with the church. Or we wait and leave after church. You make it a true priority in your days and your time, by going to bed early enough on Saturday to be able to wake up on time, refreshed and ready to prepare you and your family to be here at worship, fellowship, and to serve and study together. You make it a priority by not accepting jobs or assignments at work that mean missing Sunday worship. You make the corporate worship of God with your blood-bought brothers and sisters a priority by not valuing more what it is to sleep in, stay home and do household chores on Sunday, watch the game or the race on TV instead of prioritizing your worship of God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't forget the testimony, that uncompromised gathering, a weekly commitment to this, Don't forget what that testimony is to your unbelieving family members, your neighbors, your children or grandchildren. 
They're watching you to see what really matters to you. To see what you are truly devoted to. They may not like your priority. They may not even agree with it. But do they see it because you are uncompromised to show it to them? That you honor God, trust Him, and worship and serve Him above all else. Before we move into the specific parts of spirit-filled worship, as we read here in verse 19, let me point out one more clarity that we see in this text, in the context of this verse. Look back with me to the beginning of verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18-19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart. Consider with me, church, how opposite from the world and our flesh the testimony is that we are filled with the Spirit instead of drunk with the passions of the flesh. The testimony of the saints, of those filled with the Spirit, is different than the testimony of those who look to be filled with the things of creation, especially those who get drunk. It's Paul's example here. See how different it is. The world lives for the weekend. Why? So they can party. So that they can get numb on alcohol. So that they can travel and play. See that their pleasure, what they live for, is often these things. We who belong to Christ, we live for our pleasures in the glory of God. We too look forward to the weekend, but not to get drunk or to indulge in the world, but so that we can gather with our adopted brothers and sisters in Christ and worship the one true eternal God. Amen? Sunday worship is the highlight of our week. It is a sweet taste of our eternity to come, where we will unite in one voice in the exaltation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, how awesome it will be. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, Paul gives us something here in verse 19 that I think is very helpful, practical, and how it shapes why we do what we do in corporate worship and why we don't do what we don't do in corporate worship. Here at Disciples Church, we're very committed to do these things biblically and not based on tradition or the preferences of man. So let's look to these things together. The first thing he speaks of here is singing. Church, the first thing that we do to worship God in corporate worship is to sing songs together, to praise Him together. Scripture is filled with examples of the people of God singing. And just let me point out, many of you, you don't sing. It's not what you do, right? You don't sing in any other context. But you sing to God with the saints. Why? Because we're commanded in Scripture to do so. Because our heart wells up with a praise that while I might not be a singer, I sing to my Lord. Amen? Colossians 3.16, I told you I'd read you the fullness of that verse. You'll see why it matches up so well to what he says here in, in Ephesians 5.19. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Psalm 95, 1 through 2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. The Hebrew word that we see in many of the passages I just read for joyful noise is unique. It means to split the ears, to blow an alarm, to be loud and to shout. This is helpful to us because I think sometimes, naively, we have this view of worship that it's meant to be this very quiet and somber thing. Maybe tradition produces that, but much of biblical worship splits the ears. It's loud. It's full of celebration. It's not to be obnoxious. That's where the flesh starts to get involved, right? In a way that we make it about us. We can get loud and silly. But no, it's, it's loud It's because it's passionate. It's full of devotion and celebration to God. Our scene is to be united, church. Romans 15, 4-6 for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that throughout that th- through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope may the god of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Je- with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the god and father of our lord Jesus Christ Corporate worship is one of the sweet exercises of our unity, church. In it, we join all of our voices in one united song of praise. Not all of us are the same, but that's what makes the choir so special. Uh, In high school, I sang in choir. I, I didn't make the baseball team. It was way too competitive in Orange County where I grew up. I was the last to get cut and not make the basketball team. So I went to work and I got really involved in my youth ministry and working at Mimi's Cafe. If you ever went to Mimi's back in the day, we wore those cool half tuxedos, pink cummerbund and tie or maroon or blue, whatever the day was. Our choir director came in and saw me, 15 and a half, 16 years old in high school. um, He's... You know, we were talking. I was helping seat him and found out I went to Irvine High. And and, he, and he's like, hey, do you sing? And I, well, I sing at church in our youth praise band. And he's like, hey, you look good in a tuxedo. You sing. Come try out for a choir. I'm like, I don't know. You haven't really heard me sing, sir. <laughs> I went and tried out and, and was qualified as a worthy low bass. And it was fun. See, one of the things you learn about uh, choir singing is that you you all play an important role and the pieces of it are he's smiling at me she gets this she knows like a choir the congregation doesn't all sing the same notes you don't all have the same range nor are you expected to I sang low bass in choir that means we didn't sing the high notes you didn't want us to try to do that <laughs> you too might not be able to hit all the notes 
but your voice is designed by God as part of His holy choir. Think about that. That's what we do when we corporately worship. And so, I commend you, I I implore you, don't ever not sing because you don't like your voice. Or because you think you can't. You think, I'm going to ruin the song. No, it's not about you. And it's not even about your neighbor. It's about the Lord. It's about God. He made your voice, and He likes it. And He likes to hear it worship Him. Man, I would expect, I would uh, specifically encourage you in this. You're not doing any of us a favor to not sing. You're actually not honoring God. You should open your mouth and sing out to the one true God with all of us. Church, you may not love to sing. You may not think you have a good voice. But again, it's not about you. It's about God. And God calls you to sing. And so sing, we shall. Sing big, church. You're singing to a big God. He is worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. The next part of what was said in verse 19, singing and making melody. We are also to make a melody. What's a melody? A melody is a touch or a strike of a chord of music. It is the making of music. We are not only to sing to God, we are to make music to God. One of the big ways we do this in corporate worship is by recruiting those gifted to play different instruments to help us with the music portion of our singing. The use of instruments in worship is not a modern-day advancement, as some will like to say, that churches who sing without instruments are more biblical. You'll see how that's not true in just a minute. Um, It's straight from Scripture, church that we use instruments to worship God. Um, And as opposed to some people's personal preferences, Scripture calls us to use loud instruments. Look at Psalm 150, verse 3 through 6. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. If that wasn't enough, praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. drummer's not in here to say amen. (laughs) Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We value the use of instruments here at Disciples Church, and we are thankful for those who are gifted to play them well so that they can help lead us into united praise of God. The purpose of the instruments is not like that it's often made in the world. It's not to show off skills or to draw attention to themselves with solos. It's to complement the singing, to help it along, to help it transition, to give it moments, to give the, the congregation moments of meditation while we pause sometimes in the singing in instrumental transitions, sometimes giving you scripture to meditate on or pause just to go to prayer consider the things that we're singing to God about. The band or the instruments are our melodic tour guides as we unite together in worship and praise. We often speak among our music team here at Disciples 
to say that their primary job, the most important instrument in the room, is the congregation singing. So that our job is to help you do your job well. This was an important area of reformation in our church. Now approaching our 132nd year of ministry in our city, if you know any of our church's history, uh, the huge First Baptist Church of Bakersfield in, for many decades uh, had a wide influence in all of Kern County and California and beyond, televised. and Much of its influence was related around our music department our music emphasis, internships. We had buildings, thousands of square feet devoted to music, to, to, to making music, to teaching music. We boasted the eighth largest pipe organ west of the Mississippi in our worship center and had people come from all over the, the region and sometimes the world to hear it or to be part of a chor- uh, chorale singing or, or orchestra concerts. In this, we were guilty of making it too much about the music. Too much about the expertise of some of our musicians and the quality by which they could play. Um, In any of that that makes it about us, it's now no longer about the Lord. And so with that, there was a desire to make some change and to reform over the years and to bring new convictions to how we do what we do. Um, there can be a fine line uh, between the heart of the musician and or the musician's families in particular for why we're doing what we're doing. Um, We can be in our flesh quick to make it about us or our family who's doing it, even our beloved church family who's doing it, to say, look at what they're doing or look at what I'm doing, instead of to say, look at God. Look at who he is. Look at what he has done. The musicians practice and they play a lot. Some of of these musicians serve amounts of hours in our church more than the rest of us in all that they do to prepare to do it with excellence. But their heart, their growing heart, their convicted heart is to say truly, look at God, don't look at me. This is why we don't use fog machines in worship as some churches do. This is why we don't use strobe lights, why the drummer is not on a spinning platform, why we don't do solos or puffed up rock shows in times of worship. Why? The aim in our music is to help unite the congregation to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That's how we keep it about God. That's it. I want to encourage you personally to avoid being picky about the music. Many, many are quick to be picky about this area. Why? Because music is so personal. right? We all have our different genres, um, things that we love, you know, things we don't. People say, hey, Connor, what kind of music are you into? And I'll tell them, yeah, I like a lot of music, just not country. In, in this city, I get rebuked for that a lot. I'm surprised you let me live here as long as I have. Some of you are with me, and we'll celebrate together later. But it's just very personal. And the, the tone and the temperament, um, the style, the volume, all that, it's, it's an expression. And what you have to remember about worship, 
corporate worship is that this is a time that's not about you. You like really meditative music. It's quiet. Good. Listen to that a lot in your own time. You can't come to church and say, you all should do that my way. Um, We need to remember, of course, corporate worship is about gathering hundreds of brothers and sisters who have very different taste in music, preferences for volume or certain instruments, to unite us together as best we can to worship the Lord. Christian, I commend you to not make it about you. I've sadly heard of churches who have sought out the church to be in or left one church to pursue another because they like the music better. This is a very shallow and inappropriate reason to change churches. Is the word of God being preached rightly? Are the leaders held accountable, qualified? Are the commissions and purposes of God being fulfilled in that body? Those are the reasons why you leave or join a church. Not the color of the carpet, style of the building, lack of hair on the preacher, (laughs) or any other superficial thing like the style of the music. It's not about you. It's about the Lord gifting us with a different gathering of musicians to come and break a joyful noise unto the Lord. Fight the temptation to make it about you. Fight the temptation to be overly critical or overly praising the people of the music. It's not for you. It's not about how it makes you feel. When you're overly focused on how worship makes you feel, you're thinking about the wrong thing. It's about a united family of God worshiping God, exalting Him on high. I love the testimony of a select few of some of our oldest members over the years. Surely in our church, with all of its history, we've had moments of competing views on styles of worship and some of the generational shifts that happen along the way. It's often hardest on some of our oldest members. Why? Because life's happening. Because you get a little more picky when you get older. You get a little more particular. You guys know what I mean. You have that little extra patience for grandpa, right? And as people get older, their ears get more sensitive, right? So for some, it's not about trying to be picky about the music. It's just that sometimes the loud music hurts, right? What I've loved is those who have said, it's still not about me. So I'll wear earplugs, right? Or I'll sing these songs that this younger generation that's rising up to lead us loves that I don't really know. And I'll be willing to give up in corporate worship some of the classics, the hymns I've loved, or whatever those things are. Why? Because it's not about me. What it's about is as I look around this room, young and old, men and women, the people of God are worshiping God. That's why we do it. That's what's important. So I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with those things, make war with that. That's your flesh. And that more of us would grow in that testimony so that when it's our turn to hand the baton, when it's our turn to wear the earplugs, if we need to, we will. And we won't ask for a special accommodation or the rest of it. I would love a growing maturity of our men and women to do this better and better as the generations go on. The next part of what Paul says here is singing and making a melody to the Lord. Church, worship is about honoring God. 
praise, corporate praise, is about Him. It's not about us. This is why we are so particular here at Disciples Church to pick songs that are true about God and that are focused on God and not on us. Much modern day, quote unquote, Christian music and much of the most popular songs that are coming out that many modern churches are doing have very little to do with God. They have so much to do about how we feel and movement and emotion and and sadly, many of them just speak wrong about who God is. That They're filled with mistruths, claims that are not biblical about who God is, what He's done, what He will do. Our commitment here is to pick songs that are biblically sound and therefore truthful. We've gone so far to take a song we dearly love and stop doing it or, or not accept it. Because just within it is one lyric of mistruth. Why is that important? As many of the songs we sing, you sing. And you sing them again and again and again. And if there's a line in there that's saying something not true about God, now you're repeating, you're preaching that to yourself like it's truth when it's not. And so we want to do that well. We want to lead you well in that. So there's times where we'll change a lyric to make a song work um, and or we just won't do it. Our effort is to sing well. Sometimes within the writing of music, there's some creative licensings that we even see in the Psalms that we have to be careful to hear it or think about it rightly. Um, and that's a journey that we go on and we have to go on to make sure that we're doing that well. Uh, but that is the journey. Um, we do not want to sing things to God or about God or what He has done that are not true. Our worship is to be of God and of God alone. Um, we do not worship the church. We do not exalt ourselves. Exodus 20, 3-5, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is righteously jealous for what He is due we must always keep it about Him. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Again, this means it's not about us. Worship is not about making you feel better. It's not about how you might like the music or not. It's not about whether or not you like the song or not. We want to be careful to not do worship in a way that makes it about us. And so we avoid popular, charismatic practices that are too performance-driven, experience-driven, and not focused on God. It's one thing to close your eyes or to sit very still before God or to raise your hand to the Lord as you sing or to clap or even to dance, as some of my sweet brothers and sisters like to do. You know who you are, you dancers. But there's a fine line about doing those things unto the Lord and doing them in such a way where it's, look at me. The goal is never to pull the attention of the congregation or your neighbor onto you. Right? It's never something you do that says, look at me, or look at how faithful I am, or how passionate I am. Brother, sister, the moment your mind starts to go there, 
go a different direction. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. Don't steal the spotlight that He is due. Put it on yourself. Psalm 134, verse 2, Lift up your hands to the holy places and bless the Lord. We run in reform circles of church that has been faithful to uphold the historic orthodox truths of God. And sadly, in a few of those circles, you've seen brothers and sisters go so far to say uh, true worship doesn't include instruments. Uh, true worshipers don't ever raise their hands or clap or dance. And we would just say, that's not biblical. right? Let's look to the Word and see what God prescribes, what God commissions us to what's permissible and what's not. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Psalm 149 verse 3 Let them praise His name with dancing, making melody to Him with the tambourine or the lyre. Scripture is filled with instruction that the saints can and should raise their hands to Him, move their bodies to dance in celebration to His name. We just need to be careful that it never becomes about us. Look at me. Let me give you an example of this. To say amen out loud in the middle of a sermon or during a time of singing is to say, I agree. It's to say, what he just said is truth. It's good truth. It's good news to our soul. I think it's fine, biblically exampled even, to say amen when God's word is preached faithfully or when we sing Wonderfully true lyrics to God. But when that becomes, look at me, is when we've crossed a line. Right? I'll give you two examples. It was in a room full of pastors. 4,000 feet, large sanctuary. Word of God was being faithfully preached. Passionate message of God. And among the crowd at times there were God-honoring amens that would be said. And then there was one guy. One guy who had a plethora of pithy sayings. Not necessarily bad. But he'd just ring out, help me Jesus. And just having other things that he would say all throughout the sermon in such a way where he wasn't just agreeing. It started to become about him. You couldn't help but try to, try to have to ignore him to stay focused on the word being preached. Because of these things at sometimes true but funny things he would say, sitting there trying not to giggle. Um, and, and it just was hard. Another example was another message I sat through in a room full of uh, very minded Christians, one of the club things we were doing, and sermon was being preached with passion. And one guy in particular in the room, I think he said amen 385 times in that sermon. And it just, it just became a distraction. You, you couldn't help but almost just start to count or anticipate where he's going to jump in and chime in and chime in. And, chime. and it just, it's distracting. It, it, someone needed to love that brother enough who's close to him to say, Brother, I love that you're digging this message, but it's, it, what you're doing is too much about you. So again, there's balance there, church, that we need to have. There's a big difference between swaying your body in joyful praise and then busting out pop and lock dance moves in the aisle where you're all too far making it about you. Some of you can dance, and I love it. And it's great.
But there's just it's it's inappropriate to take it too far in corporate praise. We're, we're uniting together to go together to the Lord. Psalm 150, verse 1 through 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Our praise and focus, church, needs to be on God and not on us. Our praise is for God and not ourselves or each other. Do you recognize that there's times at the end of a song where clapping happens? Amens are said, or praise be to the Lord. Hallelujah, people will say. There's two reasons why this happens. One of them is acceptable, and I would argue that one of them is not. See, in culture, it's often practiced that when a performance is done from a stage of a musical nature, that you would clap at the end of that song. You would show your gratitude for how well it was executed, and the audience applauds. I would argue that if that's what you're doing when you clap after a song, that you should stop in this setting. Why? Because our hearts need to be fixed on the Lord. And to transition from big and high praise to God, to now all of a sudden I want to interrupt that with with praise for my brothers or my sisters, is a wrong focus. The applause should not be for each other. It should be for Him. Now, if the end of that song, the welling up of worship that's happening, moves you to not finishing that song in silence, but to say, to praise God with applause, then that could be very appropriate, very natural, very good, and very united where clapping's happening, or there's people just saying amen or thank you, Lord. That, that's fitting in that moment. It's focused on the Lord. Now, these are nuances that are important for us to understand. Our heart and affection and gratitude needs to be focused on God. Um, the next point I want to make is the last part of what he says here in verse 19, where he says, with the heart, or I would argue, from the heart. See, authentic worship is because you are, number one, rightly fixed on who God is, okay, and you are satisfied in Him and therefore overflowing into praise. Let's break both of those down. We worship God because we rightly see who He is. When we see who God is, we worship Him. Why? Because He's God. Because He's worthy. And, and you well up with this praise that's due Him and you give it to Him and you're thankful psalm 96 4 through 9 says for great is the lord and greatly to be praised he is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols but the lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him strength and beauty are in his sanctuary ascribe to the lord O families of the peoples ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory due his name bring an offering and come into his courts worship the lord in splendor of holiness tremble before him all the earth god is truly and fully worthy of all creation welling up with worship and praise for him it is only in mankind's sin that we turn from honoring god to heaping praise on the things that he created. We see this clearly laid out in Romans chapter 1, 20 through 22. Paul testifies, For his invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is a very poignant passage that there is no such thing as an atheist. The Word of God declares that even the person who doesn't want to admit that God is real knows He is. He has revealed Himself to them. They are without excuse for the fact that they do not worship Him. For although they, He continues, For although they know God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Instead, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When we see Him clearly, when the Spirit of God illuminates our eyes and we see and savor God, we will worship Him. This is worship that's from the heart It's true. It's authentic. It's not superficial. It's not out of obligation. This is why we must be diligent to be filled with the Spirit. Why we must be diligent to feast regularly on God's Word so that the truths about Him give us authentic cause and motivation to worship, to praise Him from an authentic heart, not one that's obligated or contrived. Jesus is quick to charge those who are guilty of worshiping Him out of tradition or obligation. He quotes from Isaiah when he critiques the Pharisees for worshiping Him illegitimately. Matthew 15, 8, These people honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. Worship that's not from the heart is not worship. It's religion. It's it's mechanical. It's contrived. Nobody wants that kind of praise. And this leads me to the second way that we worship, which is from a great satisfaction in Him. The fact that it was God's will to create us, to save us, to love us. Church, we not only understand that, but we treasure that. Right? We, we love that. It gets us excited. This is the good news that invigorates us. We treasure what God has done in our heart. So much so that it moves us to praise. Church, we don't show up and sing just because we have to. Why? Because that's not real worship. True praise of anything is out of the mouth of one who has found enjoyment in it. Therefore, that praise is true and not a lie. If not, then that praise is quite possibly something that's fake, mechanical. Nobody wants that kind of praise. The Lord doesn't. I've often given the illustration, my wife doesn't. She doesn't want lies of praise. If I take her out on a date and and do it right, and it's a sweet and romantic and wonderfully planned evening, and at the end of the meal, I... I look at her and I say, it was my obligation to do this for you. (laughs) Is she excited? Is she thankful? Is she enjoying that? No. Right? I'm going to walk out of there with my meal and my shirt. (laughs) But if I take her out and I do all those things and I look her in the eyes and I say, it was my pleasure to do this for you. 
that she knows she's treasured, she's loved, right? There's something way different about that. Church, it's no different than with God. From what does your praise come from? Is it a heart that's authentically satisfied in Him? Psalm 95, 1-3, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. He is our Creator, church. He's our rock of our salvation. He is great and above all else. He is worthy to be praised. If you're not in the mood to praise, then just stop and think about the grace He showed you to save you. And if you think about that rightly, you will quickly be in the mood to give Him praise. Because you see, I did not deserve His forgiveness. I was a wretched sinner, focused only on myself. He was a holy God, not obligated to forgive me. And yet He did. He provided my salvation, complete and full, my new beginning, the power of the Holy Spirit. I live as a new person because of His grace. You don't experience that and then not well up with worship and thankfulness and gratitude. Christian, is your heart full in the Lord? It's when the Spirit clears our minds to see Him for who He is. And our hearts then treasure Him for all He has done well up with great praise. Authentic and lasting praise. This is why it must be from the heart. We're going to close our service this morning by singing two songs. From the pages of Scripture, the first song, right from Psalm 145. And then I want to come read you some Scripture from Revelation 4 and 5, and then we'll sing a song from that testimony in Scripture as well. So, Praise God for His time in us this morning. Will you stand with me? We're going to go a little longer than normal, just a hair, uh, so we can praise God together. Surely you don't have some game to go home and watch. Uh, And if you do, a few more moments of pause to do this together is worth it. Let's lift our voices together, but let me pray first before we do. Father, we thank You for this time that You've given to study Your Word to be reminded of these truths, to be, um, to be convicted of these truths unto real repentance, unto growth and transformation, unto authentic worship for You. Lord, I am thankful for the work You're doing in our church. I'm thankful for the work that You're doing this morning to bring about uh, a growing grip on You so that we would be full in the Spirit, and that the fruit of that would bear itself in Spirit-filled fellowship as we speak the truths of God to each other and remind and reorient each other to your good news and value those connections, and in Spirit-filled worship. That you would be exalted and honored in our daily lives by our priorities and our preferences that they go that they point others to you but also in our corporate worship in our gathering our voices and our instruments together to worship you in one united voice as we aim to do now we love you god you are worthy to be praised 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.